Well, good evening. Welcome back to um, the Centerpoint School of Theology. This is, uh, this is lecture number 11, uh, and uh, we have been uh, immersed in the last few weeks in uh, the attributes uh, of God, and uh, we've been considering them not, uh, not according to any particular classification, but uh, uh, tonight we're going to uh, look together at God is Love next uh, Wednesday uh, when all the trick-and-treaters will be back with us. Um, next Wednesday we'll be, uh, we'll be talking about the holiness of God, which may be appropriate. Uh, God is Love. Now there's a wonderful uh, quotation from Jim, Jim Packler on page one. Uh, This is uh, Jim Packer's Canadian cousin. I I used to edit uh, a denominational magazine for 15 years or more. And uh, I used to write it and proofread it and take it to the printers and pick it up. and, And then somebody would tell me, within five minutes they would say... Do you realize there's an error on page one? And uh, for all of you who pointed out that there's a typo, um, yes, there is a typo on page one. It should be Jim Packer, of course, from uh, his uh, justly uh, famous book, uh, Knowing God, in which there's a wonderful chapter uh, on uh, the love of God. God is is love. Now let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you. Uh, Thank you for this opportunity that we have in the middle of the week uh, and this commitment that we've made together uh, to study all that you have revealed concerning yourself. And uh, we thank you for this attribute of love and goodness, how good you are, how loving you are to us. And we we pray as we study it uh, this evening that our affections might be drawn and that therefore our wills might be engaged and that we might uh, be the kind of believers, Christians, that you want us to be responding to the overtures of love that we see, uh, especially in the gospel, in the giving of your Son. So grant us now your presence, we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, not so long ago, uh, just a few months ago, in fact, uh, we were engaged on Sunday mornings listening to a wonderful series of expositions uh, by uh, Dr. Ferguson on uh, 1 John, and in which we saw uh, these, these two parallel uh, statements, uh, one in chapter 1 and one in chapter 4, God is light and God is love. God is love or God is, and God is light or purity or, or even uh, aspects of holiness. Uh, God is love and God is also light and pure. So it's not, uh, it's not a, a love that, uh, that is uh, without principle. It's not a love that uh, is without uh, wrath. It's not a love that is without anger. It's not a love that is without discipline. So God's love isn't indulgent. Uh, It doesn't uh, eliminate uh, or operate outside of his holiness. Uh, We are focusing now, we're looking at one 
particular attribute of God. But every, uh, and love is, uh, God is love in, in every aspect uh, of his being. His entire essence is love. Uh, but his entire essence is also holy, as we shall see next week. Now, love uh, in the um, in the in the theologies, as um, folk in in the past have thought about the love of God, they've seen it as a subcategory uh, of a more general idea, and that is God's goodness. Uh, and there are a number of passages that allude to uh, the goodness of God. Uh, statement of Jesus, a good master, and then remember he says, uh, why do you call me good? Uh, there is only one who is good, uh, namely God. Uh, or in the, in the psalm, Psalm 52 and verse 9 uh, I will wait for your name, for it is good. And you remember how often, especially in the Old Testament, uh, the name of God is synonymous with God himself. The name of God is synonymous with his character. Uh, when Moses asks uh, God, when he's being sent back to Egypt, um, who shall I say uh, sent me? He, he asks for a name, essentially. And uh, God says, I am that I am. He reveals his name. Uh, he reveals his character. I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. Or Psalm 119, you are good and do good. You are good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. Uh, Or in Psalm 34 and verse 8, we are urged to taste and see that the Lord is good. The goodness of God, a more general uh, category. Yes, it does say uh, copyright uh, on this uh, thing, but I did get permission from the uh, fifth wave. Uh, I I came across it and thought uh, dog lovers especially would be tickled uh, by this. Okay, let's get into something a little more theoretical. Uh, Good dog and bad dog and what is the essence of goodness. And uh, actually, I'm not going to get into it in a philosophical way. I just want to get into it in a theological way. Those of you who have done courses in Introduction to Philosophy uh, at uh, college and liberal arts uh, courses, maybe, uh, and you'll have uh, studied uh, maybe Aristotle especially, um, what is goodness? What what do we mean by goodness? And uh, can goodness be taught? And I rather think that W.H. Auden, the British-English poet, uh, 20th century poet, uh, got it right, I think, that goodness is easier to recognize um, than it is to define, and that's true about a great many things. But I'm going to limit uh, this now to to a theological consideration of uh, goodness. I have a couple of uh, fairly lengthy quotations that you can ponder over. Uh, One from uh, Charles Hodge and one from uh, Herman Bavinck. Uh, Herman Bavinck has uh, become the the flavor of the month. Uh, His uh, his Herrechemerde Dogmatique that uh, Dr. DeWitt used to quote uh, when I was a student. Of course, he was reading it in the Dutch uh, and uh, and was able to uh, have one or two over us because none of us could, could read Dutch. Uh, but now, of course, this has all been translated into English, and uh, it is a very fine four-volumed, but if you want the one-volumed abridgment, 
uh, of uh, Herman Bavink, and uh, he says the first of God's attributes is his goodness. Uh, This is not to be understood in a relative or a utilitarian sense, but absolutely. God's goodness is perfection, the sum of all goodness. His goodness, accordingly, is one with his absolute perfection. So the goodness of God, God's goodness. Now let's, uh, let's reflect on this a little and uh, let's take it down several uh, trajectories. Uh, we, can, we can think of this uh, in terms of God's goodness in creation. Uh, you'll be more than familiar with uh, the uh, refrain uh, that Moses introduces, uh, almost like a motif Uh, In uh, the first chapter of Genesis, in the first uh, creation story, God God, uh, saw that it was good, whatever it was. Uh, He he creates something, he makes something, and it was good. Uh, In verse 4, 10, 12, 18, 21, 25, and then uh, finally with the creation of man in in the seventh fold repetition uh, of this, and that's very significant, seven Seven days of creation, seven in John's revelation, it all recurs again. I think we had a seven in, in the sermon on Sunday morning. Uh, something is, is you, you said that fairly recently, but the, the importance of the number seven. Uh, well, well, there it is in Genesis 1, the, the repetition of uh, God's goodness, that creation is good, that uh, light is good, that the, that the cosmos is good, that uh, animal, animals are good, that, uh, that the creation of plant life is uh, good, and the creation of man uh, is, is good. And that, of course, has to be contrasted. Moses is undoubtedly contrasting that a little bit with uh, ancient Near Eastern thought, Egyptian thought. Uh, Moses was uh, an Egyptian and uh, was in the courts of Egypt, and so a lot of the, the epistemology of Egypt is before him as he's writing the book of Genesis, and especially, especially when uh, the Egyptians are worshipping the sun god, and, and Moses slips into Genesis, God, god made the sun and the moon and the stars, he, he made them. Uh, and here are the Egyptians worshipping this uh, deity called the sun or the moon or whatever. Uh, and uh, so we need to contrast here, there's a, there's a contrast here between, between Christianity, between Judaism, Christianity, between the Bible, uh, its worldview with regard to creation, with regard to the cosmos, with regard to matter, molecules, atoms, stuff, material things, and, uh, and other religions uh, in Moses' time in the ancient Near East, but, but since Moses' time, Hellenistic uh, Gnosticism uh, would be an example of, uh, of a worldview that regards uh, the material universe as essentially evil. And so there were views uh, in, uh, in uh, Greek thought, for example, that salvation was basically being rescued out of the prison house of the body. The body is essentially evil and that salvation is to be, is to be delivered from the body. Uh, when, when my Scottish friend uh, recently got so uptight because I said there'd be dogs in heaven, animals in heaven, and uh, she was quite adamant uh, at the door. Actually, she was quite vehement at the door that I was quite wrong about this. And uh, I, I, in my head, I didn't say any of this, I, 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 merely, I merely smiled politely and, uh, and wished her well. 
Um, but in my head, I'm thinking, so, so Hellenistic Gnosticism is alive uh, and well, uh, that there is something, there is something inherently bad, uh, unsavable even, about uh, creation. And that's not the view of creation in Genesis 1. The creation is good. Uh, creation is now subject to the ravages of evil, as Paul makes so clear in Romans 8. Uh, that it's in, it's in bondage to decay. It's, it's groaning, travailing in birth, waiting for uh, the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. But, um, you know, when you're asked, or if you ask yourself, uh, you know, what does heaven look like? Then, then you should answer it. It looks like this without sin. Imagine a universe without sin and what's, what's in it. And uh, there are plants and animals and butterflies and, and, and people, redeemed people, um, but it's, a, it's a, the creation, the universe, the cosmos, the body of Jesus, the incarnate body of Jesus is good. It's essentially good. Um, so there's the goodness of creation. That's, a, that's a, a, an important concept for those of you who are scientists and those of you who work with the physical sciences and those of you who are, um, oh, what's that fancy word for uh, trees? Um, I, I, I've forgotten what the... Whatever it is that you're saying... <laughs> In the acoustically challenged surroundings that we're in, I'm sure you're right, arboreal, am I, am I, am I close, Some, something like that. But, uh, but those are valid places to work in. Uh, you're working with God's creation. Uh, you see it uh, with, with renewed eyes, with enlightened eyes. Uh, with the spectacles of scripture, as Calvin would say, uh, when you're driving along and you see, you see a, such a, a, a massively beautiful sunset, or uh, as I saw recently, a sunrise uh, over a lake uh, on a golf course. Uh, it wasn't the golf that uh, got me going, it was the, it was the sunrise uh, and the haze, and it was, there's something about that, that, that picture first thing in the morning that is quite different from a picture, the same picture at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. The, the light is different, and I need to go on. Uh, think of the covenant with Noah. Um, there is a curse, of course, that comes upon creation in the, in the, in the flood, uh, but that's not a curse upon... Uh, that's not saying that the material universe is itself evil. Uh, the covenant with Noah is a covenant of preservation. Uh, it's a common grace element in the covenant with Noah. God's, uh, God's goodness to creation. Uh, concentrating on the preservation of creation. Uh, that God commits himself to, to uphold and preserve the present uh, order of the world so that the work of redemption can be uh, accomplished. Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, uh, will never cease as long as the earth um, endures. Uh, Genesis 9, 3, every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant, only you shall not eat flesh with its life, uh, that is its blood. But all of that is testifying, I think, to the essential goodness of uh, creation. Now, I've introduced... Uh, 
uh, a question mark, a green politics. Um, I think that Christians have a, a right uh, and, and, and maybe a duty to be involved in uh, concern for creation. Uh, and that's not being left wing or middle wing or right wing or any other wing. Uh, it's, it's, it's just being biblical uh, that the Christians should be in the forefront. Not, uh, not in crazy zany stuff, but in... Uh, yes, I mean, uh, Christians ought to be concerned about creation and about the world and about the cosmos. And uh, um, I, I simply put it out there. I'm not going to make any kind of political statement whatsoever. But I do think that uh, Christians have a right and maybe a duty uh, to, be, to be concerned about... Uh, Creation, because the creation is essentially good, uh, and um, yeah, I can I can get concerned about uh, the polar bears. Yeah, it would be be a very sad state of affairs if there were no polar bears in the world. Now, on the order of the three thousand things I'm most concerned about, you know, polar bears isn't number one. Uh, so, so don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But, but is it is it there in the three thousand things? Yes, it is. Not so much alligators, but polar bears. Um, God's goodness in providence. Let's turn the page a little. God's goodness, not just in creation, but in his, in his governing of creation and in his governing uh, of the universe. Uh, the famous statement of uh, Jacob to his brothers at the end of the Jacob narrative in uh, Genesis. Uh, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Uh, God's... Uh, God's goodness in providence. This is, this is a man who, uh, who was almost killed by his brothers. This is a man who was sold as a slave. This is a man who was jailed for 10 years, accused of rape when he was innocent. That's a terrible thing to, do, to live with, uh, to be falsely accused and to be imprisoned. Uh, and in all of that, he looks back and he says, in all of that, um, God worked it. God governed it. He ordered every aspect of it for his good purposes, for his good ends. He's in, he's in absolute um, control. Uh, or Romans 8.28, we know that uh, for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are the called according to his uh, purpose. Uh, I won't read the lengthy uh, quotation from John Murray uh, in his uh, commentary on Romans, but, uh, but all means all. Uh, all means not just God works the good things for good, but God works all things for good. He works the good things and the evil things. Uh, he, everything, the, in the totality of existence, of everything that is, uh, he ensures uh, that they are orchestrated together so that his uh, will is accomplished. Uh, the total, absolute sovereignty of uh, God um, in uh, achieving, in ensuring uh, goodness for his people, for the elect. Now that raises, uh, we, we inevitably now go into a little bit of a, a quagmire. Uh, we've opened the door and uh, suddenly we find ourselves surrounded by some difficult issues. Because if God is sovereign in ensuring the good, uh, we have to ask ourselves, uh, what is the relationship between God's goodness and the existence of evil? If God is good, why is there evil? And, um, and, and the so-called problem uh, of evil. 
And uh, the Bible uh, teaches that God, uh, that God uh, the, the Bible teaches the doctrine of providence, uh, that God is sovereign, uh, within which we must consider um, the so-called problem of evil. Uh, when, we, uh, when we look at God's providence as, as a doctrine, uh, we need to come back to this, but uh, we've opened the door here in relationship to goodness. How can God be good if there is evil in the world? Um, and God not only creates, but he manages. He manages uh, the universe. He is in total uh, control of it. His, his sovereignty uh, shapes uh, the universe and directs it toward a designed purpose and a designed goal and a designed end and a, a designed uh, telos. So what is providence? Uh, let me give you uh, one definition, uh, uh, um, a Louis Burkhoff definition of providence. Um, a continual exercise of divine energy whereby God, according to his own will, keeps all creatures in being, is concurrently active in all events, and directs all things to their appointed end. That's actually quite a sophisticated doctrine, uh, a definition of providence, more sophisticated than, than meets the eye uh, when, you, when you examine it a little more closely. Uh, it's a notion, then, of purposive management with total control. Uh, and the doctrine of the goodness of God must embrace that idea uh, of purposive management and total control. Now, the Westminster Confession, chapter 5, doctrine of uh, providence, speaks uh, to this and, uh, and about God's uh, decree. Um, and um, it, uh, it uh, reaches a point in the fourth section where it, where it says... Uh, the almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, infinite goodness of God so far manifests themselves in his providence that it extends itself even to the first fall and all other sins of angels and men. And that not by a bare permission, but such as has joined with it a most wise and powerful, now notice the verbs that are coming, bounding and otherwise ordering and governing of them. Three, three verbs, as, and you can hear them uh, uh, tightening this, uh, this screw tighter and tighter and tighter. It's not, it's not that God simply sits back and uh, allows things to happen, a kind of bare permission, um, but his, his governance is a bounding, ordering, and governing. Uh, really fastening that really tight. Um, that God's control is absolutely sovereign uh, in a manifold dispensation to his own holy ends, yet so as the sinfulness thereof proceeds only from the creature and not from God, who being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. Now, I love that. Uh, I love that because uh, it's stating, uh, it's stating a, a negative, but it's not actually explaining the positive. Uh, it's not answering the problem of evil. It's not, uh, it's not telling you how God is in total control uh, and, and uh, what is the exact relationship between God's sovereignty and sin, God's goodness and sin. It's just saying that God is not the author of sin. Sin doesn't proceed directly from God. Whatever, whatever the answer to the origin of sin, God is not uh, the author of it, uh, nor, can he, nor can he be, and he's not the approver of it. Uh, and uh, it states these things uh, uh, and, and simply moves on. 
Well, that, uh, that raises perhaps the most difficult question uh, in all of theology, uh, historically, uh, the problem of evil. Uh, what's known in theology as theodicy. Um, theodicy, uh, the justifying of the ways of God. Uh, God is in the right and worthy of praise. And uh, uh, we, we, we want to clear him from any kind of allegation of mismanagement in the world. Um, John Milton, for example, at the start of Paradise Lost, tells us that the reason he wrote that book was to justify the ways of God to man and to praise him. Uh, So theodicy was the reason uh, he wrote it. Uh, Theology is for doxology. God is to be praised in everything. Um, A contemporary approach to this is... uh, John Piper's uh, little book, uh, Don't Waste Your Cancer. Some of you have seen that book and read it and passed it along to others. Very helpful uh, uh, book. Uh, John Piper himself, of course, having, having uh, um, suffered from a form of cancer uh, and then uh, addresses this issue. Don't waste it. See it as something in God's providence that he has brought into your life. Uh, cancer is, is, is an evil, but God can use it. Uh, and his governance is such and total and his management of it is such that out of it, God can bring extraordinary good, things that otherwise could not be, uh, could not be brought about. Uh, and uh, uh, we should give thanks then, uh, Piper says, and uh, going over, perhaps going over the top in the explanation, praising God for the badness of the bad things. And, and at that point, I'm not sure I'm quite on the same page as John uh, Piper. Uh, Not so much for me praising God for everything, uh, but perhaps better praising God in everything. Uh, I'm I'm, I'm backing up just just one one step uh, from uh, John Piper. Uh, And uh, what I suspect is uh, is uh, his his reading of Jonathan Edwards uh, at that point. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, Evil is an umbrella. word for a number of things, and at least two things. One is morally bad persons, persons uh, personal wills in action, bad people doing evil. That's, uh, that's, that's one thing. Uh, and another thing is the waste of good through human badness, uh, tragic um, accidents or uh, experiences of pain. Uh, classic treatment of it uh, in the 20th century uh, C.S. Lewis's book, uh, The Problem of Pain. Uh, pain, uh, one of the things that C.S. Lewis, I think, is, is quite helpful on uh, in that book, and, and that is to say that pain isn't always a bad thing. You know, lepers, he says, don't have nerve endings that work uh, in their extremities, and uh, therefore they're able to put their hands on uh, extremely hot things and, and can do themselves damage without knowing it. You know, the, the fact that when you touch something that's hot, uh, you instinctively pull your hand away because, uh, because it's hot, uh, is a good thing. Uh, pay, pay, that sort of pain is a good thing. So not all pain uh, is a bad thing. Um, Spurgeon, you know, the, the, uh, the fact is that some of the great uh, leaders, some of the great Christians in the past have... Uh, have grown and, uh, and, and been our teachers as a consequence uh, because of pain. Uh, one thinks of Calvin, who was a walking encyclopedia of almost every disease known to man, uh, and uh, Spurgeon, who suffered with gout and, uh, and so on. Um, 
And sometimes, sometimes I think that, you know, we in 2012, uh, with all of our painkillers, and, uh, and uh, I want painkillers, I'm right up there with you, uh, so I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to God for painkillers. Ibuprofen is one of the best things ever. Uh, and, um, uh, but it does, uh, it does make us, I think, um, weaker, uh, experientially weaker, spiritually weaker, I think. Uh, because I think we, we are prone, you and I, and I think churches up and down the country will, will prove this, that we are prone to think that God never intends us to experience pain. Um, because uh, of the ease with which we can alleviate it, I think. And we're in a different uh, world, I think, to our predecessors on that point. Now, the terms of the problem of evil uh, stem from three things. That God is Lord, and that he is perfect, and that evil is real. Those are the three things. God is Lord, God is perfect, God is good, uh, and evil is real. Now, if you remove one of those, uh, one of those tenets, uh, the problem goes away. If God isn't Lord, uh, and uh, process theology would be an example of that, God isn't Lord, if God isn't absolutely sovereign, if he isn't in charge, his character is good, but his power won't enable him. Uh, so, Rabbi Kushner, um, why bad things happen to good people? When bad things happen, God isn't there. God isn't in control, so don't blame God. So he's removed the tenant of God's lordship, so the problem of pain is, uh, is, is, is taken away. Uh, if you deny pain, uh, as, in, um, as, in, uh, as in Islam, if you deny evil, uh, that, that, uh, that God is perfectly good, uh, as in Islam, you know, God's moral perfection in Islam is, uh, is questionable. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's not a given. Um, if, you, if you deny that Allah is in control, you, know, you don't know uh, anything really about his moral character, the, the problem is resolved. Uh, Allah, uh, Allah is uh, happy with uh, bad things happening. Uh, or if you're, uh, and, and uh, since there's uh, civil suits uh, abounding on Christian science uh, at the minute, let me be careful how I say this, but... Uh, uh, Christian science denies evil. It's a, it's a, it's a fiction. It's, a, it's something that you think in your mind. So you think it away uh, so that these thoughts uh, trouble you. In know, a Mary Baker Eddy uh, approach to the problem of uh, pain, you just think it away uh, and it'll trouble you no longer. Uh, I love this little limerick. A Christian scientist of Deal once said, a deal is a place in England. A Christian scientist of Deal once said, although pain isn't real, when I sit on a pin and puncture my skin, I dislike what I fancy I feel. Uh, and that sort of summarizes, I think, uh, the, uh, the Christian science approach to, uh, to evil. Now, there are some biblical principles here we need to hold together. God is sovereign. God in sovereign goodness permits evil. Uh, he punishes evil with evil. Uh, he produces good out of evil, he protects his people amid evil, and he purposes victory over evil. And there's a, there's a fairly sophisticated uh, approach then in scripture to God's relationship as good and as fundamentally good and perfect to the existence of evil. Uh, it, is, uh, it is an issue, of course, that is raised 
uh, in Psalm 73, uh, Asaph, uh, why do the wicked prosper? You know, why do wicked people seemingly prosper and God's people seemingly do not? Uh, why, do, why do good people suffer? Why do the Lord's people suffer? Why do the elect suffer? Why do those who, whom Jesus has died for and forgiven, uh, uh, why do they suffer? Uh, and uh, Asaph uh, almost loses his faith uh, until, as the psalm, you remember, reminds us, until he goes to the sanctuary and he, he begins to think about Scripture and what God has taught in the Scripture and, uh, and then realizes what is the ultimate end of those who are evil uh, and those who uh, despise God. And we may experience... Uh, evil and the ramifications of evil in this world, but there is coming a day when uh, all evil will be banished uh, in the new heavens uh, and in the new earth. So I'm saying here, uh, in terms of the goodness uh, of God, uh, a number of things, and I've got uh, some some concluding thoughts for you to consider, and maybe uh, those of you uh, who are using these notes and little Bible studies and and groups uh, during the course of the week, uh, I would suggest that you look at some of the things uh, that I've uh, suggested, four things I've suggested on pages 7 and 8. But let me move on uh, to consider God's goodness in covenant. God's goodness in covenant. And I'm I'm thinking of those ways in which the Bible often speaks of God's goodness Uh, in terms of his covenant or in terms of his steadfast love, uh, chesed in Hebrew, uh, which is a particularly covenantal word. Uh, So in Ezra, we saw this recently, Ezra chapter 3, he is good for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. Uh, Or Asaph again in Psalm 107, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. God's goodness in remembering his covenant, God's goodness in persevering with us, God's goodness in in having begun a good work, he completes it unto the day of Jesus Christ. His goodness in putting up with us uh, from day to day, his patience, his long-suffering with us, how fickle we are, how poor we are as disciples, and yet we are bounded by this, this covenant of grace uh, and his uh, steadfast uh, love. Uh, so Calvin says in a wonderful statement in book three of the Institutes that the proper object of faith is God's goodness by which sins are forgiven, the goodness uh, of God. Now, uh, the love of God is a kind of subset of that um, and, and we begin, when we think of the love of God, uh, I think we need to begin within God himself. Uh, God is love because God loves himself. Mm, that's, that's a little tricky, isn't it? That may sound... Uh, who is the guy who looked into the mirror and, and loved himself in Greek mythology? Narcissus. Uh, that may sound uh, uh, narcissistic, but... You see, God is more than one. There is more than one who is the one God. There is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There there are three persons and one God. And the Father loves the Son. And the Son loves the Father. And the Father loves the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit loves the Father and the Son and so on. So there is this this inter-Trinitarian love. Um, Look at the text uh, on the top of page 9 in the, in the uh, high priestly uh, 
prayer in John 17, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Imagine that. You know, there's only one God, but Jesus says, I am in you, Father, and you, Father, are in me. Almost, almost as, though, as though interpenetrating each other. Um, in uh, the, the church fathers had a word for it uh, in uh, Greek perichoresis and in Latin uh, circumincessio um, there was a Latin section to the church and there was a Greek section to the church in west and east and uh, so they, they have different words but they're speaking about the same thing this inter-trinitarian uh, love I think that's what's being expressed um, at the baptism and the transfiguration when uh, the father uh, speaks audibly to, to the incarnate son, uh, reminding him of his identity. You are my son, and I love you. Uh, that was for Jesus' benefit more, I think, than it was for, uh, for the disciples. So that, I don't think, first of all, it was for the disciples so that they could, that they could see that Jesus is the Son of God. This is for Jesus' own benefit. He is being baptized with the baptism of John. A baptism for repentance. Jesus, the sinless one, is receiving the baptism of of repentance. Baptism, which as he himself will will let let us know, is a symbol of of his death, of crucifixion. I have a baptism with which I must be baptized. And and at the transfiguration, just, just before he takes that road that leads inexorably to Golgotha, the father sort of steps in and, and says to his son whom he has always loved, in eternity he has loved him, you are my son and I love you. So there is a, there is a love of God, an inter-Trinitarian love. You know, that's why uh, Augustine, uh, I think, lost his, uh, his, his, his cool a little Uh, When he was asked the question, you know, what was God doing before he created the world? You know, he's got these these people who think that God was lonely. Uh, So God had to create, you know, because he's lonely. You get a dog, you know, you're a cat, because you're lonely. So God creates the world, because you're lonely. And, of course, you remember Augustine's famous answer, creating hell for people who ask questions like that. (laughs) And uh, Augustine is revealing, I think, something of his irritability maybe at that point. But, of course, God was always in fellowship within himself. A a perichoretic fellowship, a a co-inhering fellowship, an interpenetrating fellowship of love within himself. And I don't know what I'm saying, I'm 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 just repeating words here, but the concept is beyond your grasp. The, the, the infinite affection of God within himself, the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father and the Father for the Spirit and the Spirit for the, for the Father. And, uh, you know, we, we are always wanting to look at, it, look at it from the point of view, what's in it for me? You know, it's the American National Anthem. Oh, say, can you see what's in it for me? Um, and, and we're asking, you know, that, that is so symptomatic. We, we want to know what, what's, what's the payoff for me. And uh, 
John is overhearing Jesus praying in, in the high priestly prayer about, about a fellowship that is, that is all together between the Father and the Son. And that he wants us to be a part of that fellowship. And your mind, uh, your mind boggles uh, at what Jesus is saying, the depths of it, the incomprehension of it. As uh, Augustine, I think it was, who said, you know, I see the depths, but I cannot see the bottom. Well, the New Testament uh, has uh, four different words. Well, the Greek, I should say, has four different words uh, for love, um, three of which are in the New Testament. Uh, Philia, Philadelphia, of course, uh, the city of brotherly love. Philia, uh, friendship love. Storge, meaning family uh, love. Eros, meaning marital or sexual love. And then, and then a very particular word in the New Testament, agape. Now, agape was already in existence. Uh, it, it sort of lay kind of dormant. It didn't have a particular meaning. It wasn't used in any particular sort of way. And I, I think what happens in the New Testament is that the Holy Spirit, through John and Paul, sort of pour into this, this hardly used Greek word, agape, just just oodles of meaning, depths of meaning, profound meaning that can only be explained in terms of uh, the cross and of, of the love of God in giving his son. Now, uh, ahava in Hebrew uh, is, is, uh, is a word for love that is uh, a word that's used of sexual love. It's a word that's used in the Song of Solomon, for example. It's used of family affection, uh, but it's also used of the love of God. So, so uh, agape seems, perhaps, if it's drawing, as some seem to think, from uh, the Hebrew word ahave, um, uh, the, the New Testament word for agape is drawing from all, uh, all concepts of love and then, and then ratchet, ratcheting it up uh, several, several uh, degrees. Um, look at the title, Love Divine, All Loves Excelling, and then John 3.16, uh, For God so loved, it's the word agape, uh, For God so loved the world uh, that he gave his only Son, that, who, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Um, God so loved the world... Uh, what does world mean? And uh, world can mean different things in different contexts in the New Testament. Uh, and I, I rather think that world, uh, cosmos here in uh, John 3.16, is, uh, has a sort of moral meaning. It's not that John is saying God loved every single individual in precisely and exactly the same way. I don't think he's thinking in terms of individuals. I think he's, I think he's thinking of it in terms of a moral nature. God loved the world, this world, this fallen world, not an ideal world, not a, not a platonic concept of a world. He loved this world, this fallen world. And as uh, Warfield says, the world is just a synonym for all that is evil and noisome and disgusting. There is nothing in it that can attract God's love, nay, that can justify the love of any good man. It is not a thing to be dallied with or acquiesced in. Um, he loves the lost he gives the best, he asks 
the least. That would be one way of uh, unpacking John 3, um, 16. Uh, Do do you remember what John says in his first uh, epistle? Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Um, and he uses, a, he uses a word, what, what, what manner of love, uh, that literally means that this love is from out of this world. Uh, it, it's, it's out of this universe. It's, it's a love that you can't quite find in a dictionary or a book of synonyms uh, or a thesaurus even because it comes from another universe it comes from another existence uh, that, that God's love in redemption God's love in sending his son God's love in, in calling the likes of you and me into his family and saying you're my children and I'm your father and Jesus is your uh, elder brother Love divine, all loves excelling. The love that, that sends his son, his only son. He, he did not spare him. Uh, that kind of love for us, that's agape. Uh, God's love for the elect, uh, for those whom he foreknew, those, whom, those upon whom he set his affection. Uh, foreknowledge doesn't mean there what Arminians said it meant that God can see into the future. God can see into the future, but that's not what Paul is thinking of here. He's using uh, knowing here in the same way that the Hebrew text would use knowing. Adam knew Eve. He, he loved Eve. God set his love upon. God set his affection upon uh, in uh, eternity. He predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So there's a, there's a particular aspect of the love of God for the elect uh, that, uh, that brings us all the way home, that having begun a good work, he completes it unto the day of Jesus Christ. And then there's a love of God for the world, uh, the whole world, uh, what we sometimes call common grace. Uh, what uh, Jesus is speaking about uh, in Matthew 5, that he sends the rain to fall upon the just and the unjust. Uh, the benevolence uh, that he asks of us, that we love our enemies uh, and bless those who curse you. Uh, as, as God, to a degree, shows a benevolence to the world in, 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 uh, in, a, in a general sense. Uh, and, and the love of God that will have all men to be saved. Um, that, uh, that text in 1 Timothy 2.4, God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Uh, that there is, a, there is a, a, a love in God that yearns for the salvation of all. Uh, even though I do believe in election and preterition, uh, there, Paul seems to be suggesting here that there is a desire uh, look at the sentence. I remember coming across this sentence in John Murray uh, probably 30 years ago when the book first emerged and highlighting it and uh, repeating it to myself and wondering what in the world did John Murray mean. Uh, this means that there is a will to the realization of what he has not decretively willed, a pleasure towards that which he has not been pleased to decree. Now that's something you just have to think about and ponder. It's, it's very deep. Uh, 
and I'm not sure that I understand it, although I do think that it's true, that there is a desire in God that he hasn't actually decreed, uh, that is not actually fulfilled. Um, and, that, uh, and that gives us, I think, the right uh, uh, to, to preach the gospel to every creature. We don't know who the elect are. Uh, they don't have a mark upon their forehead. We preach to all the world. We go and tell uh, who, whoever they are, uh, no matter who they are, uh, that Christ has died, uh, that, uh, that there is a, a gospel there, that whosoever believes, that if they believe, they will be saved. That's, that's true for every single individual. Uh, that offer is true. That offer is, uh, is uh, genuine. So the love of, uh, of God and uh, the particularities of the love of God, and especially, I think, in Paul, uh, the love of God that manifests itself in the giving of his son. Uh, those words in Romans 8, he did not spare him, but freely delivered him up for us all. How shall he not also with him freely give us all things? Uh, we are... We are loved. We are loved generally. Uh, we are loved with a love of benevolence. We are loved with a love of goodness. We are loved with a love of kindness. But we are loved with a love of agape. We are loved with a Jesus love. We are loved with a cross love. We are loved so much that he was prepared to anathematize his son. To curse him, to put him to open grief, to hide the light of his countenance from him so that we might be saved. So that he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Father, we, uh, we thank you. Thank you for this truth. We, uh, we come across aspects of it again tonight that we don't understand. We, we don't understand how evil and terrible things can happen in the lives of those whom you love. But we, we rest in the assurance that you order everything. Nothing happens without you willing it to happen, without you willing it to happen before it happens, without you willing it to happen in the way that it happens. And that you orchestrate and order and govern and bound everything. Uh, without being the author of sin, but you, you are in such complete control that you ensure the good that you have willed for us to be to be forthcoming. So we ask tonight that we might trust you in that. For some uh, who find themselves uh, in an Asaph position, uh, that the wicked seem to be prospering, uh, the bad people seem to be winning, and the Lord's people seem to be losing, and some who are about to lose faith. Pray that you would draw them back to the cross. Draw them back to Jesus. Help them to see in the light of Calvary just how much you love us. You could not love us more than you do. So hear us, bless us, we pray uh, in Jesus' name.
Amen.